we all know that reading to our kids every day is a good thing. I think the current advice is 20 minutes daily to lay the groundwork for good stuff like increased vocabulary and generally enhanced academic performance. Right. But let's be honest, if you're a parent who's at the end of a long day and on the cusp of the freedom known as after bedtime, those 20 minutes can be a little much. Yeah, you really want to read that book called Go the Blank to Sleep. (laughs) Some days, yes. I want reading with my kids to be more than a bedtime chore. I want books to be more than homework. I want reading with them to be something we can look forward to and something we enjoy together. I want it to be meaningful for them, but also selfishly for me. Well, Sarah, you came to the right place. What if we could talk with our kids about the ideas in the stories? There's lots of fun in having a conversation that explores where these stories come from and what they're trying to say. I'm in. I'm Sarah DeBacher, tired mama to two boys. She's a lot more than that. I'm Helen Taylor, a professor of English at LSU in Shreveport and also provost and vice chancellor of that institution. Helen and I met through our work with Primetime Family Reading, a program of the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. Primetime has been around for 30 years, helping grown-ups connect with children through the big ideas in children's books. And that's also the aim of this podcast, to remind us to make the most of reading together with our children and to do so with joy. Over six episodes, we'll listen to grown-ups and kids having big talks over little books, share some vetted titles for good discussion, and talk about the big ideas in children's books. Or if your children, like my daughter, are already grown up, or think they are, (laughs) we might bring you a renewed sense of the significance of the stories that raised you, as we talk about how familiar story archetypes share connections to history, philosophy, popular culture, and the oral tradition. Geniuses and lay people, young and old, welcome to Little Voices, Big Ideas, where together we will go beyond the bedtime story. So I mentioned earlier that Helen and I have worked together on a program called Primetime Family Reading. And when we're training site teams to deliver the program, we use really good vetted book titles. And one of the books that we use is a book called Fanny's Dream by Carolyn Buner and illustrated by Mark Buner. It is a beautiful book. Uh, It's also a retelling of the Cinderella story. Yeah, it's a great take on the Cinderella story, and it sets uh, the story in the Midwest where a farm girl, a sturdy girl, we all know what that means, <laughs> called Fanny, sits and dreams about uh, marrying the mayor's son. But her fairy godmother doesn't come along, and instead she marries the short local boy called Heber, and together they raise a couple of kids and have a, a hardworking life, and then... In the end, she gets the opportunity to meet her fairy godmother. But guess what? In this modern retelling, Fanny turns her fairy godmother down because she's actually found her prince in the man that she married and the life that she's living, which, although hard, brings her the most, the most joy that she could ever want. I'm joined today by Thomas Wartenberg and Freddie Evans. 
Freddie Evans is an independent scholar who lives in New Orleans. She writes for children as well as for adults and has served as a scholar for the LEH's prime time family reading program. Thanks for having me. Thomas Wartenberg has been using picture books to teach philosophy to young children for over 20 years. His program, Teaching Children Philosophy, won an Innovation Award from the American Philosophical Association in 2011. His book, Big Ideas for Little Kids, explains how to talk to children about philosophical topics. Hi, Tom. Hi, Helen. I'm delighted to be here. Talk to us a little bit about why this Cinderella myth has endured for so many centuries. Let me start by saying that the story of Cinderella is really quite universal. It's existed in virtually every society throughout history. I think the first version around the time of Jesus is, was developed by the Greeks, but there was also a Chinese version. And every society afterwards has had it. The version that most people know comes from the French author Charles Perrault, who wrote it in 1697. But then in the 19th century, the Grimm's brothers sort of codified many fairy tales, including Cinderella, uh, in their book of fairy tales. So you can see that this story is one that seems to appeal to people in quite different contexts. And so I think it's really important for us to think about why that might be. What is it that makes this story so enduring, something that people like to listen to, uh, read, and think about? So let me talk about two different ideas. The first uh, has to do with justice and injustice, because this is a really a story about a young woman who's treated horribly by her stepfamily. And for no apparent reason other than jealousy, they uh, treat her like a servant and abuse her consistently. When it's time to go to the ball, they won't let her go. They try a variety of different tricks to explain why. But one of the interesting things is uh, when you think about the notion of justice as opposed to injustice, the natural world in this story always comes to Cinderella's aid. So when she's not allowed to go to the ball, she calls the birds and uh, different things are provided for her to enable her to look beautiful and to go to the ball and to attract Prince Charming. And in the end, of course, we all know that the glass slipper is the key to how he finds her and also to how the two stepsisters begin their punishment. So that's a sort of story arc where we see that justice triumphs over injustice in the end. And I think that's a fundamental idea or theme that people like to hear. They like to see that when somebody suffers because of the ill treatment by others, that those others will be punished and that the person who has suffered will achieve some sort of satisfaction, happiness in the end. So that's the first, I think, theme that's in Cinderella that helps account for its interest to the audiences all over the place. But I think there's another interesting theme and that has to do with one's identity. Because one of the things that happens is that Cinderella, who's really a virtuous and nice person, it's not just that she's treated horribly by her stepsisters, but they, they think of her as undeserving and a terrible person. And that's not who she really is. And it's the prince 
who sort of recognizes her and sees her for what she is. And so this idea that sometimes your identity, the one that's sort of socially recognized is not who you really are and that it's possible nonetheless for that identity to be recognized, particularly through love, is another sort of theme that's related to the first one, but it's different and I think helps cement this story as one of the classics that we turn to again and again. Thomas, these are huge ideas. And I'm thinking about, um, you know, the, the grim version of Cinderella. Can you tell us what you know about for whom these stories were written initially? Actually, the interesting things about the Grimm's fairy tales is, is they didn't write anything. They were like anthropologists. What they did is they went around Germany and they talked to people and they asked them to tell them their favorite fairy tale and they recorded what they heard. So this is a story that's part of an oral tradition. You know, many great works of ancient literature, going back to the Iliad, existed as, as an oral tradition. We tend to sort of think, for example, that Homer wrote the Iliad, like there was this guy named Homer who wrote this book, but that's not how it, it happened at all. It was a, an oral tradition, which means that various different people would keep reciting it and would change to the ages. And that's what happened with the fairy tales that the Grimm's recorded. And what that means is that this is a story that emerged from the culture and people's understandings and their need for stories to make sense of their lives. I wanted to follow up a little on Tom's idea of the multiplicity of themes that we find in Cinderella. Um, Surely social justice, justice versus injustice is one that everyone relates to, but there's also one of empathy because Cinderella and stories like this enable us to talk to children about feelings, about empathy, which is to understand and to be able to share the feelings of others. In this story, we see empathy as well as bullying because there are conversations all in schools and workplaces, even in government about empathy and about bullying. Those uh, stepsisters were classic bullies and reading stories like Cinderella and the versions that are um, true across cultures will enable students to, and parents and teachers to discuss these topics from a distance, so to speak, you know, discuss them so that those characters in the stories become models for behavior, behavior that we want to reinforce, behavior that we want to eliminate. But they are examples of uh, what we're encountering in our society every day and what we want to see among our children as well as adults. Again, we keep retelling the Cinderella story. We do it for uh, adults, um, but also for children. I mean, there are so many retellings of the Cinderella story. When we think about some of the children's books that reorient the story towards a more modern perspective, can we talk about some of the children's stories and how today we are retelling the Cinderella story and what kind of changes we feel we have to make to make that story archetype more accessible to today's children? It's not just, I think, uh, accessible to today's children. It's the fact that some of the basic 
themes that are presented in Cinderella are, are ones that authors find objectionable. For example, moral virtue is presented through beauty or handsomeness on the part of the prince, right? That would be sort of a basic idea that people nowadays would say, well, that's not really a good idea. We shouldn't be teaching our kids that only beautiful people are morally superior. That's one of a number of different ideas. We're not expecting young girls nowadays to look for their prince and find fulfillment when they get married. I remember that back many years ago when I was in college, the sort of rumor was that lots of girls went to college to find husbands, right? And um, yeah, get their MRS degree was what mm-hmm. I was right. told long right. ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and nowadays, you know, we don't think that's true. The Prince Charming story is one that actually would be criticized rather than endorsed. And so there are picture books. One of my favorites is The Paper Bag Princess, which is basically a criticism of the Cinderella story. It uses the same elements of there being a prince, but it basically says, girls don't expect the sky to be a good guy and don't expect to find happiness that way. But also just in discussing things with kids, the kids are not gonna buy some of this stuff because they live in a very different culture than say 19th century peasants in Germany. It's a different world. And so they themselves will want to say, well, wait a minute, does it make so much sense to base your whole life fortune on finding a handsome, rich mate? And as wealth, wealth, does that provide happiness? You know, in the stories, if you get a rich husband, you're happy. I don't know that people buy that anymore. <laughs> I agree with the um, variations and the changes that Tom alluded to, for instance, in the Talking Eggs, which is a Creole-based version of Cinderella, there is no princess. And in the Rough-Faced Girl, which is a Native American version of Cinderella, there is no godmother. There is no fairy godmother. So in that book, the young girl becomes self-sufficient. She creates and coordinates her own outfit that she wears to that ends up with allowing her to marry the prince, so to speak. So there are ways that we see now the girl becoming independent, self-sufficient, which is more in line with the thinking today. That's so interesting because um, as you're talking, Freddie, I'm remembering, I mean, the fairy godmother in the, um, the Perot version is the one who provides the magical transformation. Whereas these other versions uh, across uh, different cultures that you've talked about, the heroine has more agency. And I think that's a, that's a move. We used to think that there were supernatural agencies who, as in the Iliad, for example, you know, who determine our fates. But the idea of agency now, we've shifted to being sort of post-Renaissance. We're responsible for our own destinies. And I think for women, that's come a lot later, that idea, than for men. It used to be that marriage was the great social mobilizer for women. You know, you could change your, your class, as Cinderella does, through marriage, but now we don't have to teach girls that. And as somebody who has a nine and two boys, nine and six, and who thinks about how it is that I want them to understand the world and how it is that I want them to understand me as a woman and their mother, I'm actually 
grateful for narratives that trouble the archetypal Cinderella myth. And one of the things that got me interested in in thinking about and talking about Cinderella and the ways in which it shows up in different cultures and different texts is because when it's untroubled, the messages that kids internalize and that I internalized are problematic. (laughs) And in the context of Cinderella, you know, the idea that there's some benevolent uh, fairy godmother or something magical comes in from outside and solves everything. I don't know. I wonder if, Tom, you can say a little bit more about Cinderella and its being turned to the child audience. One of the things that I've discovered by working with children is that they're actually a lot more aware of things than we give them credit for. When a child has a response like that, it provides us with an occasion to talk with them about these fundamental values. You know, the story may say, beauty's wonderful, we should all aspire to beauty. But when a child says, well, wait a minute, why is that so? It opens up a field for examination that you should foster as a parent or a caretaker. You should take this opportunity, I think. That's one of the reasons that I think it's so great to use these stories because they're full of ideas that we fundamentally wouldn't endorse. And so it's really important not to, to, to give children the opportunity to respond to them and to see what they, they say. And I think we'll often find that the children have very insightful criticisms that ally with what we would want them to take away from these books, but we maybe don't trust them to reach those conclusions on their own. But maybe like Cinderella and some of these other stories, right? They can do it, but with a little help from us, they can really provide a critical insight for these stories. I have a a technique that I usually use when I talk to my children or even in primetime sessions sometimes. I say to them that the authors used these characters to tell us about something else. And what could that something else be? If we were to answer the question, this story is all about, and there is one word that you would put in, what would your word be? And let them think about it. And usually everybody can come up with a different word. It could be about family. The story is all about happiness. The story is all about kindness. It's all about bullying. It's endless. And it just draws them into a different place and and takes them to a different level when talking about the story. So it ends up not being about the prince or the, the castle but about something that's deeper and more meaningful and relating relative to their own lives. One theme that we haven't talked about really yet is this theme that the the Cinderella story in all of the versions that we've talked about demonstrates the idea of the underdog, uh, somebody who is less powerful, who is marginalized in some way. That's a huge theme that children connect to very quickly because which of us has not felt like an underdog as a child in some situation or other? I mean, the very condition of being a child makes you in a sort of powerless category. So Freddie, do you see this notion of the underdog in some of these different retellings 
There's a West African version um, of Farah's Beautiful Daughter. Uh, and there's one called Fanny Stream that we haven't talked about yet. Surely, I think that is the one consistent concept that is true in these stories. Because when we look at the various stories, you mentioned Mafara's beautiful daughter, we've talked about the talking eggs, a rough faced girl. Um, you will see sometimes different parenting arrangements. There may be a father, maybe a stepmother, may not be a stepmother. There is actually a real mother in the talking eggs. You will see different sibling numbers, sometimes two siblings, sometimes one sibling. But what is consistent throughout is the underdog status or the less than status of the main character, the protagonist. And that's what I remember relating to as an African-American reading this story that was not based in my culture because we didn't have all of these variations as I grew up, is the fact that uh, there was hope. You know, there was a way of redeeming this position that one is in. For instance, if I were to ask a question, what is the story all about? Some may say it's about life. Life gives you lemons, but work through it, keep going, and eventually it will, or it may, and it can possibly turn into lemonade. So here is this idea of social justice prevailing in this story that we all hold on to and we are cheering that this young girl who's gone through this journey of trouble and hardship ends up victorious in the end. What Freddie said is really interesting because it actually hadn't occurred to me before to um, think of the book as sort of a parable about how people can overcome oppression, which I take it as sort of what you were saying, Freddie, that um, when you look at oppressed people, they're essentially in Cinderella's position. They're being treated badly for no good reason by mm -hmm. people who think they're superior to them. And then the question is, what do you do about that? And this is a sort of very hopeful story that there is hope that even when you're in a situation that looks grim, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> and hopeless, that it isn't really that, that there are various ways for you to improve your situation. Um, one of the interesting things about the Grimm's version is that I don't believe there's actually a fairy godmother at all, it's all birds. It's nature that actually provides Cinderella with what she needs. She has these tasks that she's set to do and she can't do it and so the birds come and help her do it. The birds provide her with the dresses and everything. So it's like nature's there. It's like the idea is that the natural world is a just world and it will come to your aid and it will remedy all these injustices. And I think we may think that's a little optimistic seeing that crudely, but I think a lot of us have that faith it's quite amazing to see themes like this that we think of as very sort of serious, important themes uh, about our own world reflected in a children's story, which we tend to patronize and think of as simple and sort of stupid, a good way to get your kid to sleep or entertain them or something, but not, not something that deals with important ideas. And I think what y'all have been demonstrating uh, to me and hopefully all of us to others is how many important ideas there are in these books and how fruitful a discussion of them can be because of that. Yes, and of course that I hope will be the, the main takeaway from this podcast series. Uh, Fanny Stream, for example, which sets the story of Cinderella in the Midwest 
in a sort of indeterminate, I think, early 20th century, where the central female character is uh, a so-called sturdy girl. In other words, we're taking on the idea of what is beautiful. And in fact, in Fanny's dream, Fanny's virtue is not beauty, but the ability and the willingness to work hard, which is a very useful commodity to a farmer. But Fanny's dream is another revision of the myth. And here we have a clip from a mother and daughter, Beth and Celeste is the child, discussing Celeste's reaction to that story. Who wants a life where you do no work whatsoever and you're just a princess and a prince or mayor's son comes along and just like fixes your whole life, you know? Also, then you don't get any cute farm animals. I think that's a, a wonderful set of comments. She's talking about a book in which the Cinderella myth itself is criticized, but she endorses that criticism and she provides her own reasons for thinking that it doesn't make sense to spend your life waiting for a prince to come along. I think that's an indication of how insightful young children can be and how, you know, how she can provide reasons of her own to support ideas that she finds good ones. So she comes up with her own explanation of why you don't want to sit around waiting for your prince, including the fact that you're not going to have any fun <laughs> if you're married <laughs> to one of them. So um, I think that's just really an indication of the ability children have to reflect upon stories like this and to provide really their own justification for ideas. So they're not just absorbing the story and saying, yeah, that's right, because it was in the book. What she's saying is, oh, look, I can provide some good explanations of why this is the right way to think about things. And that's really important, I think, uh, to develop those skills in children. Another thing that jumped out to me about Celeste's uh, comment was her happiness with her life. I wouldn't say complacency, but happiness and um, comfort with where she is. So the mother should really be proud to hear that comment. There's so much critical thinking going on in Celeste's response. And so developing that healthy skepticism in children, uh, I think we're, we're giving children lifelong skills in that process. Plus, as we said, anything with farm animals is always better. <laughs> Let's listen to another clip from Beth and Celeste talking about the book Fanny's Dream. In the sense, agency is the sense of like controlling yourself, having a handle on your own destiny, making your own choices. Okay. I think having agency is what ended up making her happy. Yeah. Deciding on her life instead of feeling stuck on it. Yeah. Instead of like thinking of it like I have to be on a farm, she thinks of it more like I get to be on a farm. Mm-hmm. I decided to. I think that she's comfortable in her own skin. Uh, Tom talked earlier about identity. She clearly has one and she's happy with it. <laughs> Tom? Yeah, well, I think when you're a parent, you can't hide from your kid, right? So when I work in a classroom, I actually hide my own beliefs because I want the children to talk to each other. But when you're a parent and you're talking to your child or, or uh, children, you can't pretend you don't have ideas because they know you do and so it's a very it's a little bit of a different dynamic so I think it's um, I think actually she introduces this notion of agency it's a way of saying 
let's think about this book from a different point of view. I'm going to use this concept, but Celeste is able to hear it and translate it and think about it in her own terms. So the mom does guide her, but Celeste internalizes some of the ideas and thinks about them in a way that makes sense to her. And that's what we're hearing. So we, we've had this wonderful, rich, nuanced conversation about the Cinderella myth, the Cinderella archetype, and, and really talked about so many different kinds of themes, which tells us how many ways children's stories can stimulate a spirited discussion. Freddie Evans, thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to talking with you again on another one of these podcasts. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Tom Wartenberg. Thanks so much for all your insights. And uh, I didn't mean to diss philosophy the way I did, but you can get back at me in another episode. I'll work on that. Thanks for having me. On the next episode of Little Voices, Big Ideas, the gloves come off. We're going to discuss a book that everyone disagrees about, Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. I'm Sarah DeBacher for the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Helen Taylor from LSU Shreveport. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, and WWNO New Orleans. Tell me again, the one from start to finish. And tell me where do I fit in, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Yes, I get it now. Everybody's got something to say to each other. Everybody's got something to say to each other.